As we have said already this morning, he is risen. Amen. If you have a Bible, please open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the seat, uh, in, the, in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on page 903 of that Bible. We have been in Romans, but we are suspending that study for just a week as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is important to recognize that this is something that we do every single Sunday. After all, we gather on Sunday, not on Saturday, precisely because this is the day that the Lord was raised. It is, this is not the Sabbath. This is the first day of the week, not the seventh day, because it is the start of a brand new life. It is the start of a whole new creation. And so in one respect, the day that we gather to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ is nothing new. It is something that we do every week of the year. Yet one day a year, we set aside to have a special and purposeful focus on the attention that we give to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Friday, we focused on his death, his crucifixion at the hands of Roman authorities and Jewish condemners. Today, on Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate the fact that, as hymn writer Robert Laurie says, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. So, it's just like any other Sunday, only we might say a little bit more so. And that point is somewhat important. Each Sunday is a day to remember the fact that Jesus was indeed resurrected from the dead. It is a focal point from the church, and the resurrection of Jesus Man, it creeps into everything we do. It is in the food we eat. It is in the air we breathe. Everything that the church does has its meaning and being from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is everything to us. There are a good many in this world who would want us to kind of slow down on that kind of talk. Doesn't Christianity, after 2,000 years, have something more to say than just that a man died and rose again? Why talk about this thing that happened some 2,000 years ago? Are we living in the past like people who throw Grateful Dead stickers on their cars, right? Aren't we stuck on this past person living in the 30s, not even the 1930s, but like the 0030s, right? Why are we so stuck on these things? Why not talk about things that have more purchase and meaning in the world for us? Talk about inflation or finances or politics or wars or morality or something. Why should the church keep going on and on? about the death and resurrection of Jesus? It isn't a bad question. Certainly it can be phrased in bad faith, but it is a good question. Why do we focus on this thing that happened 2,000 years ago and not things that seem to have more practicality for us? The truth is, for your life, for your purpose in life, for any goals that you might have, there is nothing of greater importance than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some might think that these questions about the resurrection started to flourish with the invention of pure science and the industrial revolution or philosophical objections that have been brought in the 19th and 20th and now the 21st century. This is simply wrong. People in modern times might doubt whether miracles like the resurrection are possible, but a long time ago, the Greeks would have questioned whether the resurrection had any purpose. There was no doubt that the resurrection has been questioned since it first was proclaimed. Not just among those who don't believe in Jesus, but even among those who say that they believed in Jesus. Such doubts give rise to the most sustained treatment of the resurrection in all of Scripture. 
Paul will confront the lack of faith in the resurrection that has overcome parts of the Corinthian church. Paul wants to assure them of the truth of the resurrection, but he goes far beyond that. He wants them to see the purpose, the goal, the importance of the resurrection for them personally. The resurrection of the Lord ought to matter to you for many reasons. So today we're going to review the entirety of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, which is long, but I hope to do it briefly and succinctly, which is by far the best joke you are going to hear today. <laughs> Let us hear why we're going to cling to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. As we read through this, we'll read in the parts as you see them laid out in your bulletin. The first part is that the resurrection is foundational. The resurrection is foundational in verses 1 through 4. There Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures. Paul knows and has heard of many of the issues that are facing the church in Corinth. There are fights, there are factions, there's lawsuits, there's immorality. Corinth is, to put it mildly, fraught with problems. Not least of which is this problem of the denial of the resurrection, which brings into great doubt the truth of their faith. That's why it says, I, if you even believed Perhaps it was just in vain. Perhaps it, it comes to futility because if you don't believe in the resurrection, if you don't think that Jesus came up out of that grave, that's what you've done. It's just belief vainly. It does no purpose. So Paul focuses on the foundational nature of the resurrection. He's spoken to them of many things, but only this takes first importance. These things don't come close, whether you're talking about the factions the way that they're handling themselves in morality, whether it talks about how they're handling their interpersonal relationships, none of them comes close to this foundational point that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and was raised for us. It is not, by the way, just that Paul preached this. He goes out of his way to say, I passed on to you what I received. It was proclaimed to Paul, and therefore Paul proclaimed it to others. It was made clear that this is of first importance. This is what the church has always proclaimed and has always proclaimed as of first importance. This isn't a Pauline invention. It is central to everything that the Christian church has ever proclaimed. It is the foundation and the cornerstone of our entire thing. Not the care of the poor. Not the centrality of Scripture. Not the appropriate nature of the worship of God. As important as those things are and as highly important as those things are, None of them matters at all without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Christian tradition knows of no other foundation than this. There has never been a time when anything else was of first importance above this. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Let us go on to read verses 5 through 11. And, Paul says, that he appeared to Cephas... Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, 
because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Paul is not just going to leave the Corinthians with the understanding that the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is foundational, but that it is also true. It's true. He appears to Peter, raised from the dead. He appears to the other disciples, and then he says he appeared to 500 people at one time, which Paul then amends this very odd statement. Some of them have fallen asleep, which, by the way, should not be read as a euphemism here. Paul actually believes that they are simply asleep, because when you die, you don't wake up, but these will now wake. So they are, they are simply asleep, but he says, but most of them are still alive. And you might wonder, why? Why, why does that matter? Well, it matters because Paul believes that if you want to check on what I'm writing, there's like 480 people who are still alive, walking around, who had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You can check with them. You can ask them. You can say, what was it like? When did it happen? And you can go to the next guy and say, what was it like? When did it happen? And, and to the other woman, and you can ask her, and you can go around, and you can collect all these stories. There were witnesses. These things didn't happen in a corner. Jesus came up from the grave, and he appeared to people. Ask them if you want to know whether it's true. Now, this is where people object, and they say, hang on, hang on. People lie about stuff all the time. You know, my Aunt Gertrude said that Jack Nicholas hit on her in a cafe in 1968. I don't believe her, and I don't believe you, right? So people make up stories all the time. They make up stories about... Uh, things that happen in their lives, things that they've seen, things that they've done so that they might become famous, so that they might gather attention, so that they might get money. There's all kinds of reasons. Many reasons to lie as there are lies to make. It could just be that all of these folks are just making it up because they want to be important. To see the Son of God raised before you, to have him appear to you, maybe that, that just fills them with a sense of importance. Maybe that's why they lied. Okay, sure. That could very well be why they might lie. Let's hold open the idea that they, they could possibly be lying. There is a sincere problem with that, though, and that is Paul. Paul led an incredibly fine, comfortable life. He was a Roman citizen, which wasn't a bad thing to be back in the day. Within the ranks of Judaism, he was a rising star. His fame was near. He had a comfortable, prosperous life, and he was doing something that he was incredibly good at. He had status, and he had peace. And then, in one fail swoop, he threw all of it away. All of it. Going from comfort and prosperity, everywhere he went, Paul was going to be hated, whether it was by Jews or whether it was by Greeks. Whether the, the Gentiles who worshipped other gods or the Jews who supposedly worshipped his God. Everywhere he went, he would be hated. And you might say, well, but at least he had importance Everywhere Paul goes, he was the apostle. Listen, he doesn't have importance. Don't overestimate how big Christianity was. And don't overestimate how bright Paul's star was. Paul would have to write to these very Corinthians later, arguing that he shouldn't be trashed by them simply because other people claim to be greater than him. There were plenty of churches that after Paul left, left him. He suffered immensely for his call. His former life, he had the good he was comfortable, he had peace, he was prosperous. His latter life, 
was prison, torture, abuse, mistrust. Why would you lie to get that? Did Paul just wake up one day and say, you know what I could use? I could use some kicks to the face. Let's lie so I can get that. No, Paul was changed by the seeing of a risen Savior on that road to Damascus. He saw him as bright as the sun at midday. And that changed everything for him. The witnesses show that the resurrection is true. It's foundational. It's true. And third, the resurrection is central. Verses 12 through 19. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it is true, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul is arguing that the resurrection is central. What what do we lose if we lose the resurrection? I mean, after all, people probably still find this central tenet of Christianity hard to understand and to accept. So can't we just jettison it to make things easier for them? Can't we just soften our stance on it a little bit so that we might get more people to to contemplate Jesus and to think about Jesus? Paul gives a very clear answer to that. If we got rid of the resurrection, we lose everything. We make ourselves liars about God because we have always proclaimed that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and we are still in our sins. And on that, you might say, why would we still be in our sins? After all, the scriptures say that Christ died for our sins. So if he died for our sins, isn't it okay that he just died for them? Why do, why do we need the resurrection for that? Couldn't he just die and have that be payment enough for our sins? Why, why the resurrection? If someone is in prison for a crime, do we think that he's paid his time, at least in the mind of the authorities, if he's still in prison? Well, No. No, I mean, he might think that he has done more than his fair share of time, and, and his family might, and some others in the community might, have think, might think that, that he has done more than pay for his crimes. But so long as he is still in prison, if the authorities keep him there, it's clear that in their minds he has not paid for it. If Jesus is still in the grave, if Jesus is still in the tomb, if Jesus is still dead, if his bones have decayed over the years, then it is clear that God has not thought him fit to be released from that prison. And if not fully released from that prison, he is still under the penalty of those sins. And if still under the penalty of those sins, then they have not been paid. Our sins still hang upon us. So Paul mentions the rightful end of such thinking for us. If we lose the resurrection, faith doesn't mean anything. Because to believe in Jesus doesn't matter if he wasn't raised from the dead. This is why he speaks over and over again of the vanity, of the uselessness of your faith, of the uselessness of preaching. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, you've got nothing. His teaching, although perfect in all of its ways, isn't enough. His compassion, 
as touching and kind as it is, isn't what you need. His example, of which none is better, won't erase your past. You are the most to be pitied because you believed a lie and are doomed still to die. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we have no hope. The resurrection is central to us. Fourthly, the resurrection is victorious. Read with me in verses 20 to 28. Paul amends his statement. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. The resurrection is victorious, Paul says, but Jesus has been raised, and that means that he has been victorious. Paul insists that the resurrection is not just important for Jesus, but instead of being the most pitied of all people, we are the most victorious of all people. To this, to drive this home, he says, well, we can look at Adam. Adam has led us into our own death. He handed to us this sort of deformed and wretched nature. You might ask, well, how has Adam done that? He's not my dad. The very idea is built up in Scripture that each produces after its own kind. This is why we don't give birth to squirrels, because we give birth to humans. They, they carry our nature. The things that we make from ourselves carry our nature with us. And Adam and Eve both got deformed and marred through the sin in their very nature of who they were. And they passed that on to us because they could do no else. They passed on to us a nature that was mortal, that was doomed to death, and one that felt the weight of death and pain and sorrow and in punishment day after day and year after year. I now have a cell phone stand that wirelessly charges my cell phone, but I remember back in the day when I had one that was plugged in. What Adam and Eve have done is like my leaving my room that one day and grabbing my phone and running with it out and ripping that cord. And I bent the end of it. There was no way for me to ever plug that phone back in through that cord. See, what Adam has done was simply to seek to be independent of the one who is true being. He sought to be independent of the one who is good and holy and perfect and kind alone. There was no other. There was no other power source. He thought that he could do it on his own, but he couldn't. Naturally, his very being would run out. Death would be the natural consequence of that. God's very essence is to be. And he gives being to everything else. To try to be independent of him is foolish. It is a cell phone that never gets charged. Its end only is to run out of battery and to, as we say, die. Christ rose from the dead. He succumbed to that very act of being separated from the being of God 
by his human nature. By his human nature, he was able to die. He was able to succumb to the weakness and the mortality of the flesh. But he was not just human. And because he was also God, death had no claim and no hold on him because he is in the very essence of what being is. He would never be trapped by death. He could suffer it, but he could not be held by it. And so he rose. And in doing so, he showed himself victorious over the powers of the world, including death that he himself allowed his human frailty to succumb to. All the powers, the rulers, and the authorities who put them to death, he triumphs over them in the resurrection. Even as death tried to grasp him and hang on to him, it was not able to. Jesus triumphs over all of them. The resurrection is victorious. Fifth, the resurrection is moral. Verses 29 through 34. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why, do people be ba- why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The resurrection is moral. The very fact that Jesus came up out of the ground sort of grounds in and of itself the fact that we are moral beings, and it allows us to act in moral ways. What Paul is arguing is simply that the very acts that he goes through every day, when he talks about wrestling beasts in Ephesus and fighting beasts and even dying each day to the Corinthians, he says, why why should I serve you the way that I do? Why do I put up with you? Why why do I go around this world preaching Christ? Why, Why do I let my enemies do what they do to me and not retaliate? Why do I love my enemies? Why do I die every day for your behalf? The only way that that makes sense is if Paul truly believes that there will be indeed reward for him in heaven. This grounds everything that Jesus himself calls us to do. Why should you take up your cross and follow Jesus? Why should you give of yourself to others? Why should you let people speak evil to you and not retaliate with evil, but with kindness and goodness? Why are you to love your enemies? It's not because you're stupid or because you're a doormat. It's because we believe that God will make all things right. And not all things right to some sort of spiritual entity, but that he will make all things right to us bodily, who have suffered bodily. That we will receive a reward for our actions, that all will be made right again. Paul quotes this Greek poet and playwright, bad company ruins good morals. Listen, if you think like the world, you're going to walk like the world, you're going to act like the world. If you share your space, if you do the things that the world does, you will eventually look just like it. If you think like an unbeliever, you will act like an unbeliever. But if you think like Christ, who knew the power of God to resurrect him, who entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, you can take slander, you can take beatings, you can take betrayals, you can take death, knowing that God himself will raise you from the grave. 
in this life, if all you have are the 80 years, if you are lucky that you spend here, let me tell you, you better get yours now. If you come to the end of those days and there's nothing but darkness and grim defeat, you better get it now. You better get your vengeance. You better get your money. You better get your power. All of the experiences that you can handle on every bit of fame you can get because tomorrow you die. For many, this sounds great. For many, this sounds exactly like the kind of life they want to lead. But in the end, it just leads to more destruction, to more tyranny, to more hatred, because everyone else wants those things too. The resurrection establishes our morality. Sixth, the resurrection is distinct. Read with me in verses 35 to 49. Now someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps a wheat, a grain of wheat, or perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of the dust. A second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And... As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The resurrection is distinct. These many verses are the most abstract that we meet, and they are important for our last point, so just hang on for a few moments, and hopefully I can show you why these verses will pay off. The main gist of all these verses is that not all bodies are the same. Uh, Humans have different bodies than animals have, and each one of those differences attains to a different type of glory. And Paul even points out the sort of comparison of heavenly bodies. The moon is a body that is in, in the heavens, but it is distinct from the stars, and the stars we would even add are distinct from the planets. What Paul is trying to do is to compare the two bodies of Jesus. He's saying, so, on the one hand, you have the first body of Jesus which was perishable, mortal. And the second, you have a body that is distinct. It's spiritual. What Paul means by spiritual, I do not know. But it is spiritual. The only thing that we can really pin down as to what he means by that is it's not perishable. It's not like the bodies that you and I have right now. It is a distinct, it's different in some way. If you were to take somebody who knew nothing about the stars in the sky, other than the fact that they were there, and early in the evening, you would take them out on a clear night, and they would look up, and they would see one star in the sky, and they would say, hey, look at that star. You would say, I, I can understand why you think that. 
It comes out at night like the rest of the stars. It shines like the rest of the stars. It's small like the rest of the stars. But you might know different. You might say, that's, that's actually not a star at all. That's Venus. It's not a, a blazing ball of gas. It's just reflecting the light of the sun. It looks the same. In some senses, it even acts the same. But it is distinct. So is Jesus' body. He shows up. He says, feel my hands. Feel my feet. Put your hand in my side, Thomas. I have a corporeal body. It's physical. It's here. It's real. You can touch it. You can feel it. You can push on me, and I resist. And yet, in some way, shape, or form, it's, it's not like your body and not like my body. Routinely, he is popping up behind closed doors like he's some sort of David Copperfield, right? He's, he's doing all these magic tricks. He's disappearing in front of people right before their eyes. He's popping up where they, they never suspect him. I think that he probably do, does this just to freak out the disciples. So he, he shows up and he says, don't worry, I'm not a ghost. Feel me. It's real. Give me a piece of fish. Let me eat it in front of you. Ghost, don't eat. The whole point is that the seed has gone down and it dies. What Paul means by that, you might say, well, seeds don't die. Yes, well, that's not what Paul means specifically. He means the seed is no longer a seed. At some point in time, when you plant a seed, it stops being a seed and it starts being a plant. That is what has happened to Christ. He has gone down into the earth and he has stopped being a mortal in human form. But now his human form has taken on immortality. Or immortality. He is no longer perishable, but imperishable. And that brings us to the payoff. Point number seven. The resurrection is ours. Verse 50. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection is ours. Why did all that talk about the nature of the resurrection matter? It matters because human beings know that there's this paradox when it comes to death. No one really wants to die. You might say, well, suicidal people do, but we recognize that as an abnormality. We recognize that as something that needs to be fixed, something that is not right with them. No one in their right mind wants to die. No one wants to face the pain of death. It is an unknowable pain, an unexperienced pain, because everyone who has experienced it never comes back to tell us what it is. But truth be told, we also cannot fathom going on forever. These bodies are mortal. They are perishable. And that makes eternity be all the more impossible. Who in their right mind would want to go on like this forever? Who in their right mind would want to go on slugging through every day forever? Getting up and going to work 
forever. Sure, you get the weekends off, but every day you go back. The dreary days are still there. Even the happy times. You will eventually experience everything there is to experience an infinite number of times over, and you'll have to do it all over again. Our bodies seem incapable of handling the weight of forever. Our experience here seems impossibly fragile to bear the importance of living forever. So we make death into a friend. We hammer on cowbells and tell one another that we shouldn't fear the reaper. From TV shows to songs, we're told that meaning in life is given to us by death. And that death should not be seen as an enemy, but as something that is welcome for us, a release from this mortal coil. Paul here, in one sense, notes this. Your flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Even if you are forgiven for your sins, your flesh and blood are not possible to stand before God. You don't want to die, but you can't bear not dying. Your bodies are filled with sin and with death. They cannot live forever. So the weight of eternity is impossible for them to bear. And even still, they're unworthy of it because sin riddles them. But Paul says we will all be changed. Whether those who are resurrected from the ground or those who are alive at the coming of our Lord, they will all be changed. Your mortal bodies, which cannot bear the weight of immortality, will put on immortality. Your perishable body will no longer be perishable. It will be that spiritual body. The resurrection of Jesus Christ becomes yours. And while they are still bodies, they are now made to fit the reality of heaven. Made to carry the weight of eternity. Not with dreariness, not with drudgery, but with joy and happiness. Full out every moment of every day for the rest of eternity. To exist in power and in glory and in might before God. This is why the resurrection of Christ will be ours. His victory is ours. His life will be ours. His presence will be ours. No longer will you feel the weight. No longer will you feel the weight of death. Either it's gravity pulling you toward it or it's existence in you. No longer will you be pulled towards that, both hating it and longing for it. Only then will we stand up and say, Death, where is your sting? Where is your gravity? Where is your victory over me? My mortal body is no more. I am imperishable now. What can you do to me? How will you touch me? Where is your victory? It is lost. The resurrection is the basis for everything we do as Christians. Not because it was sort of a helpful trick to promote this new religion. Nor is it just some facet of what we proclaim that seems to make Jesus even more important. But because everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we believe as Christians hangs on the thing. Friends, do not believe in vain. Do not let your faith be futile and worthless. Trust that Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures, that he was indeed buried and that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. Not simply so that your sins might be forgiven, 
but so that you might have the power to stand forever before God, never tiring, never fading, never diminishing, ever glorious, ever powerful, ever holy. His resurrection is ours. And he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Our God, as Jesus has come to bear our own flesh, to be made in our own likeness, he has come to be the new Adam, so that all who believe in him truly might be as he is. We have died with him, died to our sin and to the world. So we live with him, alive to God in being and in righteousness. And we are even raised with him in power, immortal, imperishable, glorious, victorious. Father, you did not let your Holy One see corruption, and so through the living Spirit made him alive even though he was dead. Grant even this to us, in the Son, through the Spirit. We ask this in the name of the resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ, the one to whom every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and below the earth. For to him be the kingdom, the power, and the glory forevermore. Amen.